This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hear more from Free FM. For a small monthly fee, you can become a patron and support independent community media. Go to patreon.com slash freefm89 to find out how. Hello. I hope you've had a great week both in your everyday activities and your spiritual strivings. Today let's start with looking at our motivation for participating in the program today. The subject we've been talking about over the last few weeks is bodhicitta, so it seems kind of natural that bodhicitta becomes our motivation. So, if possible, consider that we've come together today in this discussion so we can attain enlightenment for the purpose of helping all beings everywhere in whatever way they need, but particularly to gain enlightenment themselves, that is bodhicitta. However, if you can't motivate in that way for the sake of all others, at least think that you're here today for your own liberation from all suffering. Thank you. Now, over the last few weeks, we've been examining the text Mind Training Like the Rays of the Sun, a commentary on another text, The Seven Points of Mind Training. We're in the section on generating bodhicitta, the wish to attain enlightenment to best benefit all living beings. That bodhicitta depends on the development of great love and great compassion. And over the last few weeks, we've looked at how to make great love part of our motivation for, lo- for life. Great love, of course, means an open-hearted love for all beings, barring none. And contrast this with the love that only focuses on one or two beings, and especially, for instance, the kind of thing we mean when we talk about love in the romantic sense. That can hardly be called love in the real sense. As Shakespeare so aptly put it in his sonnet number 147, my love is as a fever longing still for that which longer nurseth the disease, feeding on that which doth preserve the ill, the uncertain sickly appetite to please. My reason, the physician to my love, angry that his prescriptions are not kept, hath left me, and I desperate now approve desire is death, which physic did accept. Past cure I am, now reason is past care, and frantic mad with evermore unrest. My thoughts and my discourse as madmen's are, at random from the truth vainly expressed. For I have sworn thee fair and thought thee bright, who art as black as hell, as dark as night. Now compared this with Thich Nhat Hanh's explanation of love. Often, when we say, I love you, we focus mostly on the idea of the I who is doing the loving, and less on the quality of the love that's being offered. This is because we are caught by the idea of self. We think we have a self, but there's no such thing as an individual separate self. A flower is made only of non-flower elements, such as chlorophyll, sunlight and water. If we were to remove all the non-flower elements from the flower, there would be no flower left. A flower cannot be by herself alone. A flower can only interbe with all of us. Humans are like this too. We can't exist by ourselves alone. We can only interbe. I am made only of non-me elements, such as the earth, the sun, parents and ancestors. In a relationship, 
If you can see the nature of interbeing between you and the other person, you can see that his suffering is your own suffering, and your happiness is his own happiness. With this way of seeing, you speak and act differently. This in itself can relieve so much suffering. Well, if we could see our interbeing with all others, how could we then love only one or two? Wouldn't our love extend to all others? But as we interbe, to use Thich Nhat Hanh's word, with the sun, the moon, the, sky, the stars, the earth, the flowers and the trees, as well as the hurricane, the storm and the earthquake, wouldn't we also love them all in the same way? Although in Tibetan Buddhism, great love is the wish for all sentient beings to have well-being and happiness, if we can really see the interbeing between sentient beings and non-sentient being, great love should extend to all things, because nothing can have separate independent existence. His Holiness the Dalai Lama also stresses the function of interdependence in the experience of real love. He says, From my own limited experience, I have found that the greatest degree of inner tranquility comes from the development of love and compassion. The more we care for the happiness of others, the greater our own sense of well-being becomes. Cultivating a close, warm-hearted feeling for others automatically puts the mind at ease. This helps remove whatever fears or insecurities we may have and gives us the strength to cope with any obstacles we encounter. It is the ultimate source of success in life. As long as we live in this world, we are bound to encounter problems. If at such times we lose hope and become discouraged, we diminish our ability to face difficulties. If, on the other hand, we remember that it is not just ourselves, but everyone who has to undergo suffering, this more realistic perspective will increase our determination and capacity to overcome troubles. Indeed, with this attitude, each new obstacle can be seen as yet another valuable opportunity to improve our mind. Thus, we can strive gradually to become more compassionate. That is, we can develop both genuine sympathy for, sympathy for others' suffering and the will to help remove their pain. As a result, our own serenity and inner strength will increase. Ultimately, the reason why love and compassion bring the greatest happiness is simply that our nature cherishes them above all else. The need for love lies at the very foundation of human existence. It results from the profound interdependence we all share with one another. However capable and skillful an individual may be, left alone he or she will not survive. However vigorous and independent one may feel during the most prosperous periods of life, when one is sick or very young or very old, one must depend on the support of others. Interdependence, of course, is a fundamental law of nature. Not only higher forms of life, but also many of the smallest insects are social beings who, without any religion, law or education, survive by mutual cooperation based on an innate recognition of their interconnectedness. The most subtle level of material phenomena is also governed by interdependence. All phenomena from the planet we inhabit to the oceans, clouds, forests and flowers that surround us arise in dependence upon subtle patterns of energy. Without their proper interaction, they dissolve and decay. It is because our own human existence is so dependent on the help of others that our need for love lies at the very foundation of our existence. Therefore, we need a genuine sense of responsibility 
and a sincere concern for the welfare of others. He goes on to say, I believe that no one is born free from the need for love. And this demonstrates that, although some modern schools of thought seek to do so, human beings cannot be defined as solely physical. No material object, however beautiful or valuable, can make us feel loved, because our deeper identity and true character lie in the subjective nature of the mind. Now last week we completed the section on the text on love and moved on to compassion, for the basis of bodhicitta is great love and great compassion. Remember now we are talking about the line in the seven points of mind training that tells us to meditate on giving and taking, where giving refers to giving happiness and taking means to take on suffering. The happiness we are giving is our own, and we are giving it to all others, while the suffering we are taking is that of all others, and we take it on ourselves to, re to relieve others. Giving happiness refers to great love, and taking on suffering refers to great compassion. Continuing with the text, in our discussion of compassion last week, we started with the benefits of developing great compassion, and Namkar Pal quoted Nagarjuna as saying that great compassion was good in the beginning, the middle, and the end of our spiritual journey. As it is the seed of Buddhahood, compassion is good in the beginning, and as water nurtures a growing plant, it nurtures the Buddhist practices in the middle, and finally, great compassion is good in the end because it's inseparable from the full fruit of Buddhahood. Tupton Rinpoche, one of the former teachers of the Dagi Center in Dunedin, wrote a poem on compassion, which he titled Advice on the Benefits of the Mind of Compassion, called Necklace of Pearls. And it goes like this. Prostrations to the compassionate Arya. Homage to great compassion. Firmest foundation for the mind of enlightenment. The gateway for the universal vehicle to reach the highest, the conqueror's state. Save great compassion from what other prime cause could emerge the fleeting joy of pleasant words, the ultimate joy of Buddhahood. With great compassion, one is called a conqueror's child, that's a bodhisattva, that hearers and solitary realizers pass not beyond solitary peace is surely due to lacking great compassion. Hence, when you find transient peace and when others pay respect to you, abandoning pride, think these have come through the kindness of compassion. When you suffer sickness and misery, condemnation and belittling by others, harbor no ill feeling for them, but think these have come due to lacking compassion. When you receive whatever you wished for, food and clothing, shelter and so on, the effects of a generous mind in previous lives, think this too is the kindness of compassion. Of your plight, dearth of food and clothing, the effect of not having given, ruled by miserliness in previous lives, think this is due to lacking compassion. Peace, happiness and fame, praise and veneration, all arise from the ethics of abstaining from harm and from malice its cause. Think these too are the kindness of compassion. When you are afflicted with various ills and contagions through collecting bad actions, killings and so on, think this too is due to my lacking compassion. Beauty and charisma, firm mind and soft words arise from patience imp imperturbable. Think these too are the kindness of compassion. A loathsome appearance 
and unpleasant words are caused by the anger that intends to harm others. Think, these too are due to lacking compassion. In brief, all glories of worldly existence and peace emerge from great compassion alone. Know likewise that all forms of decline emerge from lacking compassion. The mind of compassion has qualities vast as space. If even Buddhas find it hard to see them, how could I, small being, take their measure? Mayabi ship's captain, who, relying on the vessel compassion, plucks mother sentient beings vast as space from the evil ocean of existence. If you wish to practice Dharma from the heart, seek and rely on a master with compassion. Make entreaties to the deity of compassion and meditate upon the mind of compassion. May those of degenerate times without compassion, objects of compassion, be moistened with a mind of compassion through the constant shower of sacred teachings on compassion. We can see that if anything were to define the Mayana teachings, it would be the mind of compassion. Tupton Rinpoche points out that the real cause of every misfortune we experience is a previous action that lacked compassion, and the real cause of every happiness is a previous action motivated by the mind of compassion. For instance, he writes, When you suffer sickness and misery, condemnation and belittling by others, harbor no ill feeling for them, but think, these have come due to lacking compassion. Now, of course, when others condemn and belittle us, they are not operating out of the mind of compassion. But this is not really what Tupton Rinpoche is talking about. He is saying that the sickness, misery, condemnation and belittling we undergo reflects the way we acted in the past to others. We collected the karma to experience these things by not having compassion for others. Rinpoche also writes, When you receive whatever you have wished for, food and clothing, shelter and so on, the effects of a generous mind in previous lives, think this too is the kindness of compassion. Peace, happiness and fame, praise and veneration will arise from the ethics of abstaining from harm and from malice its cause. Think these too are the kindness of compassion. And here he indicates that in previous lives our generosity and lack of harm to others our consideration not to cause them suffering led us to have good conditions like food, clothing, shelter, and so on, as well as peace, happiness, fame, praise, and veneration in this life. So not only is compassion important in attaining Buddhahood, as Nagarjuna points out, but it is essential for all our temporary happiness, whether we are on the path to liberation or not. Namkapel next quotes a text titled Compendium of Perfect Doctrine, which I know nothing about, and the only thing remotely similar on the internet is Shantideva's Shikasa Samuchaya, a compendium of Buddha's doctrine. But I don't think the quote comes from that, as I've had teachings on Siksha Samuchaya, and the style is very different. Anyway, the quote goes like this, O subduer, bodhisattvas do not train in many teachings. O subduer, if they perfectly grasp and accomplish the one doctrine, they have enlightenment in the palms of their hands. If you ask, what is that doctrine? It is great compassion. O subduer, if you have great compassion, you have all doctrines in the palm of your hand. O subduer, it is similar, for example, to the precious wheel of a universal monarch 
around which all other forces gather. O subduer, similarly, wherever the great compassion of a bodhisattva exists, there also exists the Buddha's doctrine. O subduer, likewise, wherever the life faculty is present, there also are the sense faculties. O subduer, thus, if you have great compassion, you will acquire all the other qualities of a bodhisattva. Now the story of a nun might illustrate this. It comes from a National Geographic documentary titled Light at the Edge of the World and you'll find the clip concerning the nun on YouTube if you search for Buddhist nun speaks after 45 years of solitary retreat. I have told her story before on these programs but it is worth repeating. Before she became ordained, this lady whose name is Ngawan Pema was regarded as the most beautiful woman in Kumbu the region where she lived. She had many suitors, and even one rich and powerful merchant had the power to demand her hand in marriage. However, she fled her home and all the men and shut herself up in a tiny hut where she stayed meditating for 45 years without seeing anybody. People would leave food for her and pay respect at her hut for blessings, but she spoke to no one. Then, during the making of the National Geographic documentary, the famous Buddhist monk Machu Ricard, he was known as the happiest man in the world, and one or two others visited her hut and actually knocked on the door. I guess more with hope than belief she would answer. But she did. She opened the top part of the two-part door and peering out from the hut, greeted them happily and kindly, giving them cookies as refreshment. They paid their respects to her, but before they left, she said to Maki Rickard, who speaks Tibetan, and who you must remember is well versed in Buddhist philosophy and practice, it's great all that monastic stuff you do, and I respect it and it's quite wonderful. But you know, it really comes down to a single mantra. That mantra is Om Mani Padme Hum, the mantra of Chenrezig or Avalokiteshvara, the personification of all the Buddha's compassion. In the video, Machu Rickard explains that her only practice is reciting the mantra Om Muni Padme Hum while deeply praying that all sentient beings be free for, from all outer and inner sufferings and from her heart dedicating the merit to them. Through his translation, the nun says the mantra is like the one dharma that contains all dharmas. It all boils down to our own mind, the nature and quality of our own mind, she says. Whatever the Buddha has taught, all the many, many teachings were all meant to understand the nature of mind. The main thing is to give away all elaborate practice and simply remain in the Buddha nature, the Buddha mind. That's all. So here we can see the two wings of the Buddha's teaching, that is compassion in the recitation of the mantra and wisdom in the understanding of the nature of mind, effortlessly coming together in the 45-year practice of the mantra of compassion recited by one old nun. His Holiness the Dalai Lama is an expert of compassion. In fact, in Tibetan Buddhism, he is regarded as the embodiment of Chenrezig. He has this to say on his website, www.dalailama.com. Some of my friends have told me that, while love and compassion are marvelous and good, they are not really very relevant. Our world, they say, is not a place where such beliefs have much influence or power. They claim that anger and hatred are so much part of human nature 
that humanity will always be dominated by them. I do not agree. We humans have existed in our present form for about a hundred thousand years. I believe that if during this time the human mind had been primarily controlled by anger and hatred, our overall population would have decreased. But today, despite all our wars, we find that the human population is greater than ever. This clearly indicates to me that love and compassion predominate in the world. And this is why unpleasant events are news. Compassionate activities are so much part of daily life that they're taken for granted and therefore are largely ignored. He goes on, But of course, it is also true that we all have an innate self-centeredness that inhibits our love for others. So since we desire the true happiness that is brought about by only a calm mind, and since such peace of mind is brought about by only a compassionate attitude, how can we develop this? Obviously, it is not enough for us simply to think about how nice compassion is. We need to make a concerted effort to develop it. We must use all the events of our daily life to transform our thoughts and behavior. First of all, we must be clear about what we mean by compassion. Many forms of compassionate feeling are mixed with desire and attachment. For instance, the love parents feel of their child is often strongly associated with their own emotional needs, so it's not fully compassionate. Again, in marriage, the love between husband and wife, particularly at the beginning when each partner still may not know the other's deepest character very well, depends more on, t- on attachment than genuine love. Our desire can be so strong that the person to whom we are attached appears to be good when in fact he or she is very negative. In addition, we have a tendency to exaggerate small positive qualities. Thus, when one partner's attitude changes, the other partner is often disappointed and his or her attitude changes too. This is an indication that love has been motivated more by personal need than by genuine care for the other individual. True compassion is not just an emotional response, but a firm commitment founded on reason. Therefore, a truly compassionate attitude towards others does not change even if they behave negatively. Of course, developing this kind of compassion is not at all easy. As a start, let us consider the following facts. Whether people are beautiful and friendly, or unattractive and disruptive, ultimately, they are human beings just like oneself. Like oneself, they want happiness and do not want suffering. Furthermore, their right to overcome suffering and be happy is equal to one's own. Now, when you recognize that all beings are equal in both their desire for happiness and their right to obtain it, you automatically feel empathy and closeness for them. Through accustoming your mind to this sense of universal altruism, you develop a feeling of responsibility for others, the wish to help them actively overcome their problems. Nor is this wish selective. It applies equally to all. As long as they are human beings experiencing pleasure and pain just as you do, there's no logical basis to discriminate between them or to alter your concern for them if they behave negatively. Let me emphasize that it is within your power, given patience and time, to develop this kind of compassion. Of course, our self-centeredness, our distinctive attachment to the feeling of an independent, self-existent I 
works fundamentally to inhibit our compassion. Indeed, true compassion can be experienced only when this type of self-grasping is eliminated. But this does not mean that we cannot start and make progress now. We should begin by removing the greatest hindrance to compassion, anger and hatred. As we all know, these are extremely powerful emotions and they can overwhelm our entire mind. Nevertheless, they can be controlled. If, however, they are not, these negative emotions will plague us with no extra effort on their part and impede our quest for the happiness of a loving mind. So as a start, it is useful to investigate whether or not anger is of value. Sometimes, when we are discouraged by a difficult situation, anger does seem helpful, appearing to bring with it more energy, confidence and determination. Here, though, we must examine our mental state carefully. While it is true that anger brings extra energy, if we explore the nature of this energy, we discover that it is blind. We cannot be sure whether its result will be positive or negative. This is because anger eclipses the best part of our brain, its rationality. So the energy of anger is almost always unreliable. It can cause an immense amount of destructive, unfortunate behavior. Moreover, if anger increases to the extreme, one becomes like a mad person, acting in ways that are as damaging to oneself as they are to others. It is possible, however, to develop an equally forceful but far more controlled energy with which to handle difficult situations. This controlled energy comes not only from a compassionate attitude, but also from reason and patience. These are the most powerful antidotes to anger. Unfortunately, many people must judge these qualities as signs of weakness. I believe the opposite to be true, that they are the true signs of inner strength. Compassion is by nature gentle, peaceful and soft, but it is very powerful. It is those who easily lose their patience who are insecure and unstable. Thus, to me, the arousal of anger is a direct sign of weakness. So when a problem first arises, try to remain humble and maintain a sincere attitude and be concerned that the outcome is fair. Of course, others may try to take advantage of you, and if your remaining detached only encourages unjust aggression, adopt a strong stand. This, however, should be done with compassion, and if it is necessary to express your views and take strong countermeasures, do so without anger or ill intent. You should realize that even though your opponents appear to be harming you, in the end their destructive activity will damage only themselves. In order to check your own selfish impulse to retaliate, you should recall your desire to practice compassion and assume responsibility for helping prevent the other person from suffering the consequences of his or her acts. Thus, because the measures you imply have been calmly chosen, they will be more effective, more accurate and more forceful. Retaliation based on blind energy of anger seldom hits the target. Words of great wisdom from the personification of the Buddha's compassion, His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And that ends the program for today. Thanks for joining us. I hope you'll do so again next week. Please dedicate any positive energy from the program to gaining enlightenment for the sake of all beings. Thank you and goodbye. 
Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com/freefm89 to find out more.